Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and we're joined by author Mickey R. Pettit. Mickey will be reading from A Kiss for Maggie Moore. Mickey, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Anytime. Just, I'm just thrilled. I love being read to. Everyone knows, like, I love being read to. And so, um, yeah, every time someone says, yeah, come on, and I'll read for you, I'm like, I'm just happy. So I'm just going to dive right in. And where did the idea for Kiss Me Maggie Moore come from? I was actually on a road trip on my own, probably with a dog in my car. And I was driving through Wyoming because I used to visit um, my relatives, my grandmother, every summer after we left Wyoming. And I was making up a song in my head. And apparently unrequited love was on my brain. I don't know why. And uh it, it was just a tune. And these uh names came out. Bucky, Melinda, and me. And uh I just went from there. And it took 20 years, but <laughs> And you still remember the tune too. Yeah, so they are actually, you know, back then I didn't record it. But yeah, I think I, I was, you know, with songs, I'd always come up with like maybe a verse, but I can never do a complete song. I'm amazed I did a complete book, but I did. Well, congratulations on the complete book and also on the incomplete song. Could we have our first reading, please? Uh, yes. Um, well, A Kiss for Maggie Moore is uh, my debut novel. It's the coming of age. Uh, Story. It's a love story between three best friends that are growing up in a small town in Wyoming neighborhood in the 1960s and the 1970s. And if you're familiar with the Wonder Years, uh, this is the Wonder Years out west. There is a little humor and heart and a dash of romance in there. It's not a, a young adult novel, but it's geared more toward women and men who've experienced that time period. Maggie is the narrator and the weaver of the tale. She's a smart-mouthed tomboy with a tough facade, and uh, she often masks her true feelings, especially toward her best friend, Bucky. And Maggie meets Bucky for the first time while exploring their under-construction neighborhood. Buckingham Howard Majors III, he shouted with hands on his hips, looking like a general who had just taken a hill, my hill. A third of what? I shouted back. Not a third, the third. Well, I'm Margaret Emma Moore, the first. That means I'm number one. Get it, Mr. The Third? Oh, yeah? Well, I was here first. He had a point, but I wasn't going to back down. You lie. You lie like a fly with a booger in its eye. Wait a minute. Margaret? 
His voice turned smug. You're just a girl. Just a girl. It wasn't the first time someone had mistaken me for a boy, nor was it the first time someone had said those words as if being a girl wasn't good enough. But this time the phrase stung. He was a dead man. I took my best as seen on television boxing stance. You take that back, I demanded. He crossed his arms and tilted his head as if reconsidering. He obviously outweighed me, but I was meaner. Mr. Deether didn't want to tangle with me, so he did the next best thing to Winnie. He negotiated. Well, if you'll share the hill, I'll share this. He pulled a fistful of smashed jelly beans from his pocket. Never one to turn down anything edible. I accepted. My friends call me Bucky, he said, holding out a hand to help me up our jointly claimed pile of construction rubble. That's when I saw his dimple for the first time. I took his hand, and he took my heart. Oh, so the book is set in Wyoming, and you were born in Wyoming and lived in New Mexico, and now you're in Texas. What was it like to write Wyoming? And what stayed true to Wyoming, as you know or remember? I just really want to know. I'm curious about where you could fictionalize, but what had to stay true? Well, I I fictionalized the town in Wyoming. However, the area, I did not. I used to go back. I moved to uh, New Mexico when I was about six years old with my family. But I always would go back to Wyoming because all our relatives were there, my grandmother in particular, my aunts and uncles. So every summer I'd experience, I'd have the Wyoming experience, like, you know, because my relatives were cowboys and cow women, <laughs> ranchers, and uh, and just, you know, that was part of my experience. And then I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico by growing up, I mean, after sixth grade until my high school years and through my high school years. So when I wrote the book, I would sort of, I would juxtapose the um, the two on top of each other. And they were similar in enough, uh, you know, they were similar enough. There was um, small town, oil and gas, although the area in Wyoming where I was was in the mountains. There was also mountains in, in northern New Mexico. And so they were similar enough. The people were similar enough, and the times were. And so, and interesting, you talk about how to reckon, uh, how to go back into that time. For some reason, when I could go back, I could do the language really well from that time. And, you know, that was one thing I was trying very hard to do is say true to the language of the time. You know, and sometimes, like when I refer to uh, Native Americans, well, in the '60s, Native Americans was was that was not a term that was used. And so, in my first part of the book, which is set in the the later part of the '60s, you will see that I will use the term Indian. But in one in the '70s, I will use the term Native American because that was the term that was being used at that time. It's always really interesting when you look back at language, and because I'm always curious about um, how individuals refer to themselves, and that changes as well. Like regardless of what kind of media or governments call people, and I always feel like when I'm writing 
usually when I write a contemporary fiction, but I, I want to, you know, get it right. But I'm less interested in what the government calls people, but I'm super interested in what people call themselves. Right, right. So could we have another reading, please? Okay, will do. So Bucky has uh, Maggie's heart from the get-go. He's a cute, easygoing, kind of feisty guy. He's feisty enough without being overly aggressive. And he infuriates Maggie because uh, she can't pinpoint nor pin down their relationship. And that's because Melinda is the third leg of this triangle. And she's the object of Bucky's affection. Melinda's pretty, she's smart, and she's fiercely loyal to Maggie. And Bucky and Maggie meet Melinda shortly after their, their own first encounter. The new girl was wearing a school dress, fancier than anything I'd ever seen, much less anything I'd ever wear. Her hair was the color of autumn grass, golden with a hint of red. It was tamed by two fancy French braids, each embellished with a bright blue bow that perfectly matched her dress and her eyes. She was sitting on the rusty rail of the old railroad tracks. No train had run them for years, so they were ours to travel. Bucky spotted her first. We'd been scouting Indians, certain that any minute a whole war party would appear over the horizon and lead us on an adventure. Just one of the many imaginary scenarios Bucky and I had acted out since we made peace atop the pile of house-making leftovers. Who do you suppose that is? Bucky whispered. Don't know. Never saw her. I whispered back. Maybe it's the medicine woman. Hmm, he wondered. Let's get closer. On hands and knees, we inched our way through the tall grass alongside the tracks, Bucky in blue jeans and a T-shirt, me in hand-me-down overalls. When we were about six ties away, she moved, plucking a dandelion that had gone to seed. Ah, an unsuspecting damsel, I whispered, immediately changing pretends. Bucky didn't respond. Instead, he fixated on the dandelion as if he were the one examining the bygone flower. She had enchanted him. I didn't like it. Not one bit. Since Bucky had ceased to be part of the plan, it was up to me to figure out exactly who this princess was. Leaping into the air, I gave my best monster-on-the-loose scream. The effect was disappointing. She stiffened but didn't scream back. When you attempt to scare someone and it doesn't work, you have to redeem yourself quickly. I tried again, knowing full well I'd probably look like an idiot. Although Bucky stood up and glared at me, the girl seemed amused. What's your name, I asked, and why are you here? Melinda, she said, standing to brush the dirt from the backside of her dainty dress. Melinda Thomas, I hope you don't mind, but I've been following you. I'm your new neighbor. Something about her tugged my heart, like the need to nuzzle a sleeping puppy. She extended her arm for a handshake, an offer of friendship, if I'd only take it. The formality suited her, and, and I liked her show of respect. I decided she would fit in just fine, at least until she smiled at Bucky. <laughs> Oh, wow. So the book is set in the 60s. What does that make possible in terms of characters, narrative, tensions, the setting? Interesting being a 12-year-old in, in the late 60s. 
particularly I, I had an older brother, but I mean, um, but being 12 years old, I wasn't really locked into or noticing what was going on in the world other than myself and my friends. So a lot was going on in the 60s, but as a 12-year-old, I wasn't paying much attention. Had I been 18 years old in the 60s, it would have been an entirely different story. But as I was coming of age, so was a lot of the world in a different way. And uh, so I saw lives differently, I, you know, I mean, from as a 12-year-old. So what was that like then, writing times where you might have either known some of the stories, not recognized them, like in the present, but then going back to them now and being able to say, ah, oh, this is what was going on, and this is what this meant, or this is what this might have been like. I like the fact of having my characters and me go back and re-examine the life and perspective of what was going on around the world. And obviously, as you get older, you understand more. But how, and, and, and so I wanted my characters to start opening up to change, mm-hmm. opening up to, wait a minute, these people are saying these things, this, this is happening, but it doesn't make sense because they're, they're, kind of opening their eyes to things that are, you know, coming of age in the 60s was uh, um, eye-opening. Turning into an adolescent is eye-opening. Or, you know, turning into a teenager is eye-opening. And then they were in the same way, kind of, Mm. you know, tumultuous, but yet you don't understand it yet. You're not in the thick of it yet. Mm. And so it was it was nice to be at that place, but I could see it now as a place. I don't I was not aware as Maggie is. Maggie is coming, you know, she's her awareness, and Melinda is particularly aware because she's a very smart girl, astute girl. And uh, Bucky's not, but you know, we love him anyway. <laughs> so i liked seeing i loved writing this character of melinda who was more aware and on top of things than i was even though i am not maggie but i write more from the maggie place oh how wonderful can we have our final reading please uh yes well, A Kiss for Maggie Morris told in two parts, as I've been saying. The first began with the summer of 1968. Um, as Maggie tells it, it's a tempestuous year for our country. Although slow to come to the rodeo, even Wyoming was beginning to feel the effects of change. But at just 12 years old, my best friends and I had yet to open our eyes to anything outside our own environs. We had more important things to do. Life was still about playing outside and staying out of trouble. So as the children, Maggie's romantic feelings are confused and, you know, with and often eclipsed by the her free-spirited adventures she and Bucky share with Melinda. But in their teens, it takes on a whole new meaning, as does trouble. And so part two of A Kiss for Maggie Moore set during their senior year at high school, 1973-74, Maggie is still holds a touch for Bucky. Bucky's soft spot for Melinda has not changed. 
And because of family circumstances, Melinda is spiraling out of control. I'm going to read a bit from chapter 10. It's uh, an October night after a homecoming game. Maggie and Bucky are on a pseudo date at a kager in the bluffs above Choke Cherry Canyon. A kager, <laughs> I'm sure most people, well, I don't know, who knows? A kager is an outdoor party teenagers have that involves a campfire, a keg of beer, and pot. Of course, this being the 70s. So, Bucky took our cups for a refill while I moved to a flat outcrop of sandstone about 20 feet away from the fire. It was pretty chilly, and my windbreaker did little to keep me warm, but it was nice to get away from the smoke. When he returned, Bucky asked me to hold the beer. Then, in a gesture that took me by complete surprise, removed his letter jacket and handed it to me as he sat down. Thanks, but you don't have to do that, I told him. I got thicker skin than you. Draping the jacket over my bare legs, I put my arms through its leather sleeves, then hugged my knees, feeling the weight of Bucky's warm back against mine, as we wiggled in close to use each other as lean-tos, something we had done since we were kids. Like a game of follow the leader, I responded to his every movement. When he lifted his cup, I took a drink. When he adjusted his rear end on the damp sandstone, I wiggled as well. When he breathed, I breathed. It was the first time I'd been alone with my so-called homecoming date, and I let myself believe that the butterflies in my stomach were also in his. A temporary illusion. The voices from the fire had merged into a sibilant hum, punctuated by an occasional laugh and shout. Then came a distinct sound, distant at first, then rippling through the darkness. Soon the headlights of McGregor's pickup, our designated lookout, flooded over a motorcycle. Melinda unstraddled and slid off as Dan Mazzoni put down the kickstand and signaled, kill the lights. Then he went one way, and she went another. Danny Mazzoni was not a nice person. I knew this from firsthand experience. In the summer between my sophomore and junior years, I had finally developed a pair of boobs and the curves that went with them. Emboldened by the new me, I foolishly approached Danny on the first day of school and flirted. Why, Mr. Mazzoni, you're looking good. To which he replied, Why, Maggie Moore, you're looking better. I was crushed. It took the rest of the year to get beyond his backhanded compliment. Danny Mazzoni wasn't nice, but he was an excellent athlete. He and Bucky had been teammates in a myriad of leagues. Both were ace pitchers, and baseball had room for more than one top dog. But small-town football? There could only be one quarterback, and the guys settled that matter in junior high when Danny's arm outshined Bucky's. Bucky, the faster of the two, became a wide receiver. They made one hell of a pass-catch combo, but Danny never liked Bucky to best him, especially when Bucky was selected most valuable player in ninth grade. He started to throw to Bucky less and less. Danny was in it for Danny. If that meant being an asshole to get what he wanted, he'd be an asshole. Danny went through a lot of girls, and even though he wasn't a kiss-and-tell kind of guy, everyone knew when a Mazzoni romance was over. He left his heartbroken exes with no phone call and no explanation. Just a dismissive look that said, I win, see you later. Melinda sat in front of Danny in American Humanities class. Intrigued by her aloofness, Melinda couldn't care less about Danny's elite jock status. Danny also knew that Bucky had a thing for her. 
Melinda turned down Danny's first and second offers, but decided what the hell after he scored some badass weed and suggested they ditch class to smoke it. According to Melinda, Danny was on the boring side of dull. He did very little talking, which was okay, but because when he did open his mouth, he had very little to say. He was a lousy kisser, a tongue thruster with about as much finesse as a jackhammer. So why go out, I asked her. Well, it turned out Melinda liked being pursued by someone with a playboy reputation. She knew it was all a game. She also knew the only way to stay in control was to play hard to get. The more she held him at bay, the more he came at her, and the better the pot. To Melinda, the back and forth had become a turn-on, but she eventually passed into Never Never Land, believing that when it came to successfully taming a bad boy, she was the exception and not the rule. She was wrong. When Melinda got off Danny's motorcycle, he gave her the Mazzoni, I win, see you later, look. I saw it. Bucky saw it. And so did everyone else. Oh, where would you like us to buy Kiss Me, Maggie Moore? You can buy a kiss for Maggie Moore from the publisher, actually. Um, and the publisher is Black Rose Writing. Just Google that, blackrosewriting.com. So that's, uh, they'll show their books, or you can just put Black Rose Writing a Kiss for Maggie Moore. Okay. You could also get it on Amazon. Um, it goes through, if it goes through the publisher, I make maybe a little bit more money. <laughs> No, we should go. We should go through the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Just a wee bit, and that's not much even. <laughs> but it's not. It's better than not making it. So yeah, I could say, but yeah. Well, wonderful. So thank you, work for coming for for reading. Um, and when I've been saying it wrong the whole time, so a kiss for Maggie Moore. A kiss for Maggie Moore. Yeah. Wonderful. So thank you for, for reading from the book and talking to us about it. And of course, for being our guest on Bookable Spain. Oh, thank you for having me. And it's been a joy to meet you finally. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it. And if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space the Audio Literary Salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.